This is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Welcome back uh, for another week of Yolitics, everybody. Uh, Jason, I have a question for you. Um, this is what you were. Say. This is why we delayed this podcast so you could find a question for me. Then, yeah. okay, go ahead. This should be good. Another podcast delayed by me. Um, ha- what's the biggest raise you have ever gone in to request? Uh, I, I went into request that I wanted to make what Wheeler makes. I said, "Listen, <laughs> I said, listen, I'm, I'm said, tired sure, of being. We'll give you I'm a pay cut. Tired of being underpaid. I want to make what Wheeler makes." And and just you know, let's cut straight to it. Here's the, what our the, let the me reason, get, let, no no no. The reason ahead, I ask this, the reason I ask this is uh, I saw this really interesting piece that was put out by Redfin. You know, they mm. deal with homes and housing and so forth. I saw this interesting piece put out by Redfin earlier this year, and they basically crunched the numbers of you know how much do you need to make to live in certain places and own a home, and specifically in Austin. Uh, the, the numbers read, you know, sort of uh, panned out that you, you know, that most people there would need more than a fifty thousand dollar raise to be wow. able to afford the median home there, the or the average home there. Think about going in and asking for more than a fifty thousand dollar raise. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 the numbers aren't just limited to Austin. Austin has blown up like crazy. But, uh, you know, Redfin looked at Dallas and Houston and San Antonio late last year. Uh, in Dallas, they determined you'd need about $113,000 in income to, avoid, uh, to afford, the, you know, just the, the regular house. Uh, Houston, it was lower than that, 88000 San Antonio, around 87000 All of these numbers, no matter which city that we're talking about there, uh, come in higher than what your median household income is in these places. And so a lot of people are finding that, you know, that American dream is just not accessible for them. And two things, it's, you know, it's not just the housing cost to, to purchase a house, but it's rent also for the mm-hmm. millions of Texans that want to go out and try to find a house at some point, but have to rent until then. Rent, rents are going way up, and it's all because of the thing that, that our leaders have been talking about in the state for a quarter of a century, the Texas miracle. Our economy is popping. People love to move here. Uh, companies love to move here, but for a number of reasons, and all that is driving our housing costs through the roof. Mm-hmm. We have a great guest on to talk about this, uh, but before we get to her, I want to hear what you're drinking because you said you brought three beers to this podcast, Wheeler. You know something, man. And I and I may or may not have already consumed two of them. No, I haven't. <laughs> what are you drinking, uh, man? Uh, I am, uh, since I, I know that I cannot afford a, a home in Austin, I am drinking a beer from Austin. I can afford that. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, a, it's, it's made by, um, I think it's called Meridian. Have you heard that? Mm-mm. It's Meridian Hive. Uh, there it is right there. It's got honey in it. Mm. Uh, and I'm having the tropical flavor. It's We're- made in Austin. Where have you been shopping to get that, man? Um, I went to Whole Foods to get this. Wow, that's, that's we, impressive. And we do not have a sponsorship with Whole Foods, by the way. <laughs> but if we did, if we did, right now we would be showing a graphic of Whole Foods, uh, which you know. By the way, a reminder: you can watch this podcast as well if you just search for WFAA and Yolitics on YouTube, uh, or uh, or look for Yolitics and and YouTube on Google, and it'll take you right to it. Those two beers are getting to you already, man. My goodness. Ooh, the and tropicals. Good. If Whole Foods would like to sponsor this podcast, feel free to give us a call. 
The tropicals uh, are a little dangerous, though, because uh, I can see how you might just think that this is like, you know, just a sweet little drink, and you start putting it away. <laughs> it looks good. I'm having the uh, the amber lager from uh, uh, Manhattan Project Beer Company. It's called Redgate, and okay. I've never had this one. I, I'm a huge fan of their beer um, over in West Dallas. And it's, it's, I love the Pilsner they have, uh, but I'm going to crack this one open, too. And as I pop this one open... Tell us about our guest because she yes. has a beer with us too. Yes, uh, her name is Nicole Nosek. She is the chair of the board for Texans for Reasonable Solutions. They have been all over this whole issue of underhousing, uh, housing inaccessibility, housing unaffordability here in Texas, and they've really been pushing leaders to try to fix this. The question is, is it getting fixed? Uh, Nicole, welcome to the program. I hear that you brought uh, the beer that uh, the type of beer that Jason and I never want to drink. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'll tell you, I've never been on a fun enough podcast or interview where they asked me to bring a beer. I hear that you're supposed to not drink on podcasts. Or Sorry. Is that what they say? Is that what they yeah, say? I, I, I guess so. So, you know, you're defying all the rules here. Um, I have Bombshell Blonde, American Blonde Ale. I'm pretty pale, so instead of bringing pale ale, I decided to upgrade it a little bit with blonde ale. Um, it's oh. from Conroe, Texas. Nice. <laughs> I thought you were going to bring an IPA. You didn't bring an IPA. Well, I got a blonde ale instead of a pale ale, so okay. yeah. I decided nice. to upgrade it a little bit. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, Nicole, um, you know, feel free to crack that open and, and have a few swigs as we get into this, because uh, you know, I think that th this whole housing issue is enough, to, you know, it, it really is enough to drive people to want to drink. Uh, we do not promote that. Uh, but, um, you know, talk to us a little bit, just the overview of what we're looking at here in Texas, because it just seems like, you know, I, I work on uh, these this money franchise. It's called Right on the Money. Um, and, and I do these regular reports, I can't tell you how often I hear from people who on one side tell me they can't afford housing, uh, they can't afford to get a house here in Texas, and then on the other side people tell me I can't afford rent anymore. I mean, it, it, both ends of the spectrum are just getting pulled. Yeah, and you know, it's well, let me give you a little bit of background of why the heck we're the group that's tackling this issue. And I'm happy to get into you, get into some of the, the facts and the data and the stories that I've, I've dealt with in trying to, to introduce and work with a lot of really amazing leaders uh, in the Texas State Legislature. So about eight or eight years ago, I was in a situation where I was uh, a paralegal working full time, making just below 50K, studying to go to law school, um, actually working more than 40 hours per week. And all I could find in the city that I was in was a three bedroom apartment. It wasn't in the safest part of town. There was a little family in one room with two parents and a, and a child. In the second room, there was another young professional. And in the third room was myself. Jeez. Given those circumstances, I was still lucky. I felt fortunate if I had $1,000 in savings in my bank account mm. after all was said and done after I paid rent. And it caused me to look down the rabbit hole because I was not looking at a situation where I could save up for a home or put a down payment on a home. And you know, I feel like I was working hard. I I I done I done sort of the path of going to college and and studying um, for a profession that should have been secure. When I looked down the rabbit hole of what is land use, it became very clear to me that there was just a few folks. I'm not even talking about near a majority who decided that 
it was unexcusable to add another level of, uh, of an apartment onto another home down the street, hmm. or that it was unacceptable to add an in-law suite for somebody's grandma to live in because they couldn't afford a retirement home. So these I are mean, regulations that you're talking about at the local level. Yes, and there is some, there is issues called discretionary review. I mean, it varies. There, there's different language and different regulations here in Texas, which don't get me started on that, but I'm happy to actually <laughs> To, to get started on that, on some of those different issues. In Austin, for example, I don't think it's a coincidence that Austin is the most expensive city in Texas. And if somebody wants to um, add another level to an apartment building, add a duplex, uh, they could have 20% of the people within 200 feet of where they're trying to upzone. That's when you're trying to add more units, can kill the project. So if you live 200 feet away, you could decide that it's you don't want to add 20 more units to something blocks away from you that would ultimately be housing for a senior citizen who couldn't really afford a retirement or a firefighter. 70% above 70% of Austin ISD spend more than one third of their income on housing. That's unacceptable. Well, let's talk about the cities here because as you mentioned, Austin, I think is the second uh what the second most overvalued housing market in the country according to uh a, a number of studies and we've talked about this in the past with the county judge in travis county andy brown with the uh the, the previous mayor as well too about affordability and and specifically the regulatory environment that you're talking about the building permit folks and the the codes compliance and the, the whole lot of them uh dallas up I-35 has had similar issues for years now, ever since the pandemic started, uh, with issuing building permits. Massive backlog on this. I know we'll get into the legislature in a minute here, but I wonder, are cities the problem here by putting up all this red tape to, to, to you know, everything from conservation districts, historic districts? I get the idea to preserve certain things, but are cities causing the problems here? Great question. My answer is some of the issues are far more of the of the problem than others. Sometimes it's understaffed. Sometimes it's incompetence. And sometimes it's just plain they don't want to build and they're using these, they're delaying the projects. And that's ultimately effective because I'll give you an example. In overly regulated markets compared to moderately regulated markets, 45% less projects will get off of the ground. What does that mean? 45% less housing supply will not be there if there's all of these insane regulations that make it so that a developer or, a, or an affordable housing company goes, you know, I wanted to build in Austin, but we don't even know whether we're gonna get our, our permits within three to four years and our capital will be tied up. We can instead go somewhere like Houston or somewhere else where it's much easier to build and be able to build faster and meet our timelines. So yes, cities are the problem. The good news, some cities are the problem. The great news is that we introduced a bill. Uh, we worked very closely with, uh, with Representative Cody Harris, as well as Senator Betancourt to introduce a bill called HB 14. This bill said that if cities took longer than what ultimately ended up being 45 days, the builder or developer could go to a certified architect or a certified engineer and get the sign off on their projects. Hmm. Wow. So it's sort of a release valve. Um, you know, I, I spoke in private with, with 
at least three of the major metropolitan mayors about this. And in private, they like this concept. I think a lot of uh, city departments are struggling with the fact that there's a lot of folks trying to move here and there's not quite the staff needs that are there. Um, I've seen studies that showed there's 30% turnover year after year in the city of Austin. So well, you've got- Nicole, let me ask you this though. I mean, I would think that the cities would have a financial incentive to approve these projects. It grows the tax base, they can collect more. Why are the cities, some cities, holding this up? So this is where I think that there's, the folks who end up killing projects, they're oftentimes very close with some of the different, with some of the staff here. The other time is that there's not, there's not a lot of the institutional knowledge that needs to be there in order to scale with this. So while there is an incentive to bring in money for these projects, it's, uh, there's, no, there's no incentive to do it fast because right now the cities have a monopoly. It's not like you could say, city of Austin, you're not working for me. I'm going to go to city of Fort Worth and get my, get my approvals. Let me tell you about this genius study or this genius bill that happened in Florida. So Florida had the same issue a couple of years ago. Florida ended up introducing a, a bill saying, if you don't get your permits on time, every, every X days, we're going to take 10% of the permit fees that you're going to pay, and we're going to refund them to you. If it goes up to 50%, we're going to refund 50% of them. Would you believe it? 50% of the permits, and at the beginning, before this law was took effect, 50% of the permits were on time. After that law took effect, 90% of the permits were on time. Those financial so incentives are powerful. Oh, it's it was it's a it's a powerful thing. So yeah. uh, let me ask you this though: uh, there would be people who would say, uh, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, bypass the cities or streamline the process, make it easier, build, build, build. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like the idea of build, 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 especially when it comes to their neighborhood. They do that not in my neighborhood NIMBY thing, especially, you know, you've got somebody like, you know, Jason Whiteley, who's going to move in next to you and just start putting up shoddy buildings in the back and renting it out and so forth. Um, how much are homeowners responsible for this or property owners responsible for this? Because, you know, we all say that, oh, yeah, we'd love it if everybody could have housing and if it could be affordable and all of that. But then, you know, you say, well, OK, well, we're going to put up this duplex or this apartment complex. It's going to be right down the street from you and it's going to serve, you know, moderately uh, you know, moderate income people. And people are immediately like, uh, -uh I don't want that right there in my neighborhood, though. I want it, but I just don't want it here. Uh, and, you know, politicians at the local level are responding to that, aren't they? Excellent point. Um, I, I really feel like we're at a time where the winds are shifting. What I'll say, I have a few points on this, but I don't think it's a coincidence that California is net losing people and Texas is gaining 1,000 people every day. I, I don't think that's a coincidence. And in fact, if you look online, you'll find that both Oracle and Tesla cited the one of the main reasons that they moved here was land use restrictions in the areas that uh, that they had their headquarters in. So or housing is the inhibitor to growth. But I'd like to point out, we based one of, one of the bills that we were um, heavily behind was the minimum lot size bill. And this was a bill that we're at, we actually based off of Houston. So Houston had done this same reform uh, in the late 90s, and then they kind of expanded this in the early 2000s. What they did, which was genius, and I'm very confident based on research that we saw that it would not have gotten passed if they had not had this caveat, 
which was they said, okay, if you really don't want a small lot or a moderate lot in your neighborhood, we're going to create simple steps for you to get out of it. If you don't want a 2,500 square foot lot in your neighborhood, you could create a homeowner association. It's relatively easy to create a homeowner association. You could, um, if it's a historic preservation, we'll bypass it. And if on your home, you don't want that, you could create a deed restriction. So this is our way of saying, look, we understand if, if it's really important for your neighborhood to, to look a certain way, and that's a really port, an important part of your uh, way of living, do it to your own neighborhood. Do not do it to an entire city because chances are, I mean, over 55% of Texans say that they're paying too much for housing. For people that are under 40, they say that they're thinking of move, oh, two thirds of those folks say they're thinking of moving away because they can't afford housing. Hmm. Point being is that there's a lot of people here who say, hey, having a 2,500 square foot lot on my property, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I would like the concept of making sure that my grandkid will be able to, to live here when they grow up or that my kid will be able to live here and doesn't have to move out to Timbuktu in order to afford a home. This was also introduced in Utah where, you know, Utah has a very similar makeup as Texas. Uh, also, you know, an R dominated state. And the guy who introduced some of the legislation there in Utah during his hearing, he said, how many of you have a kid, uh, an adult child or a grandkid that lives in Utah? They raised their hand and that ultimately ended up determining how many people voted for some of these moderate reforms to allow people who aren't multimillionaires to live here. I'll say one last thing, which is um, we are headed to what San Francisco, to where San Francisco is now. In San Francisco, you need $1.3 million in savings to live comfortably. On median, it's about, last time I checked, it's $1.7 million for a home. That is the reality that we're looking at if we don't drastically alter our land use decisions and, and our housing policies. Let's zoom out a little, a little more here. And the whole point of changing these policies is to get more affordable housing for everyone here. You said that the mission for your organization is is to you know keep the Texas miracle alive, which we talked about, um, and and this poses a threat to that. High high prices pose a threat to that. If, if workers have nowhere to 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 land, uh, your group sent a letter to the Texas legislature and to and to state leaders a couple of months ago, back in May. Uh, 118 people and organizations signed on to this letter asking. Speaker Phelan, Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick to do something. There were a number of bills introduced. You talked about HB 14 earlier, and we covered some of those in, in the podcast here. But whatever happened to any of them? Did any of them move? Did any get passed? Great question. So that letter was actually quite instrumental. There were we had I'll, I'll tell you about some of the other bills um, that we were heavily sort of promoting and working with some of the legislators there in Texas. Uh, some of the other ones were ADUs accessory dwelling units, also known as in-law suites. I don't know if uh, listeners or, or, or folks folks were following, but that was one of the most dramatic votes that even some of the folks on my team who have been working in that building for decades had ever seen. It was, um, not only was it point of order, but it also took 30 minutes to verify the vote count. And then on top of that, the vote count ended up being 68 to 70, of which point I went and I spoke with legislators after uh, some of the no votes, they they confirmed that it was 
a misinformation campaign that really got to them to switch their vote on the floor from yes to no. What was the misinformation? Nicole, explain real quick what these the excessive uh, uh, dwelling units would have been for our listeners who may not know what that is. Absolutely. Um, the, and the, 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 state, the state wanted to override cities' ability to, to stop these, right? Yeah, override is one word. I like to say allow homeowners to do what they want with their property. Um, I'll give you an example of what an accessory dwelling unit is. Maybe you've gone over to a friend's house and you've seen that they have a pool house or you've seen that they have a garage flat and maybe um, a, a child who has graduated from college hasn't quite gotten on their feet yet might live in that garage flat until they get kind of a stable job and get up on their feet, enter the workforce. Um, maybe it's uh, an in-law who can't quite afford to live in a senior home. Over 70% of seniors right now cannot afford assisted living. Mm. So this is a problem and this is something that easily helps address that. We took a lot of the bill language from AARP's direct website. This is the bill language that, that's listed on AARP. So, um, that that does that explain yeah yeah that is a good explanation and what happened to these bills though that, that were yeah. introduced so the so and and i i wake up every day and i think about this it's it was the airbnb short-term rental fight uh that seemed to take the stage but if you look at the actual facts and, and if folks did any any uh real read of what the bill said explicitly allocated powers to the cities to say, look, cities, do you want to decide whether short-term rentals and Airbnbs should be legal in your cities? You decide. That yeah. has nothing to do with accessory dwelling units. Um, if you don't want short-term rentals, that's cool with us. If you want them, that's cool with us. We. This is about a housing supply and demand issue. And I don't think, I, I think listeners here would agree if you've got 10 folks fighting over three homes, and even if the homes are not that great, those three homes are going to vastly increase in price. The accessory dwelling unit law really helps. I've got somebody uh, who's, a, who's helping at my nonprofit. Her husband uh, is the CEO of a startup and they live in an accessory dwelling unit. So you've got somebody who's working heavily in a nonprofit and somebody who's really trying to get their startup off of the ground. And they typically are 30% less than your average home price. Hmm. Um, okay. Can you can you talk? Right. But, yeah, but so so you said that that tanked uh, there in the legislature. It was just by a couple of votes. Um, at what point then do I mean? And, and I know you all have been very active in the legislature. But at what point do you go? Well, uh, we've got to go and work with these individual cities. Uh, you know, maybe this isn't a legislature thing. Maybe this is you know trying to work with cities. I think you're onto something. What I'll say is this. This was our first uh, legislative session, and they typically, I, I was told a few times, Nicole, we just want to warn you, any bill that gets passed typically takes three sessions. Yeah. And my thought was, I'm, I'm not going to be waiting three sessions. Because that's six years here in Texas, because we do them every two years. So you're waiting six years for a, a, a quote unquote new idea to get traction. Totally. And I think there's something that most folks don't recognize, which is Texas is set up to kill bills. I was talking um, about this bill with with um, with a with a, a planner and also a, a writer, and I said, "Yeah, so now we have to wait another two years. And if you even if your bill's in good running, if if it, you don't make the deadline, like our lot size bill got all the way through the Senate, through the Senate committee, 
through the House Committee. It had a hearing in uh, in the House floor, and it was 30 bills, about 30 bills away from that midnight deadline. Mm -hmm. Most other states would say, yeah, we're going to get them all through if you're on that list. Mm -hmm. And so what is great and also in my situation not so great about Texas is it is set up to not have new laws get implemented. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that 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 might give you a little bit of uh, shed a little bit of light on the situation. Um, we are we are now uh, working very closely with Habitat for Humanity, uh, folks on the right, folks that are volunteers, folks who just care about their kids and their communities um, getting housing. But more importantly, a lot of those folks on the list, small business owners. We have the the founder of Whole Foods. You guys talked about Whole Foods earlier. Wage inflation happens when people are having to pay 40% more for their property than a few years ago. Wage inflation might sound like a good thing, but what people don't realize is that when a business has to pay uh, you know, 30% more to their employee, that money does not go to the employee, it goes straight to the landlord. Right. So really nobody wins here except for the landlord. So go buy property is if you can afford it is what is what you're saying. Be a landlord. But, but Nicole, what, what are businesses doing to push for change here? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, it, it's it's their need to hire a workforce and, and uh, to land in a city where their employees can afford to live. Well, a lot of them are jumping on the bandwagon um, and they recognize this. So I don't our our efforts are not at all divorced and people are approaching us. I was just talking with somebody in one of the major urban metros here in Texas, uh, who's part of a business coalition who told who told me that they've had five conversations about this very issue where businesses wanted to move into the urban core of the city I was talking to, but they said, your housing issue is a problem. Yeah. Let me go deeper on this. That was Houston. Houston is the most affordable urban core city, not only in Texas, in the entire nation. Yeah. And if Companies don't want to move to our most affordable city in Texas. What does that mean for Dallas? What does that mean for Austin? I really worry that we're on the path to not only becoming like San Francisco, but possibly even becoming like Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, where it becomes somewhat of a ghost town. I don't think that'll happen in the next five years, but if we continue on this trajectory, it could be a 15 to 20 year thing if we don't start loosening up uh, our land use laws and allowing people to build more for our workforce, for our middle class. That's And, and a lot of people who are in support of that, that the, the movement is called YIMBY, which is the opposite of NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's yes in my backyard. Uh, I want you to build stuff in my backyard. I want you to put in housing uh, to you know get to all of these underhoused people. Uh, but you know there are people who would say though that you know I mean on on y'all's website you say since 2020 Texas has built three times as much housing per capita than California. Uh, even though it has a smaller population, uh, we see you know thousands of houses going in in Texas every year. We see many, many tens of thousands of apartments coming online in, especially in the major Texas cities. But you know, I just did something last year on those apartments. I mean, you see these huge complexes going up everywhere uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth, and in Houston. Almost all of them were considered "quote unquote" luxury apartments. So stuff keeps getting built, but it's still price-wise out of reach. The, the stuff that's actually being put out there isn't accessible or affordable for a lot of people. Well, great question. And I think it's worth talking about this. So one of the big things that 
that we brought up are accessory dwelling units and lot size. So those specific kinds of homes specifically address middle housing. We're not talking in, in those two bills, we're not talking about luxury high rises or, or mansions. We did have our third party review, which did apply to market rate homes and also affordable homes. Our philosophy, and there's so much data on there. I would, I would say there's 90% data to support what I'm about to say and 10% that would uh, probably disagree to say that when you put up market rate housing and affordable housing, both of them, Wait, what, explain what market rate housing is first. Market is just driven by the market. So there's okay. no subsidies. So it's just maybe a developer who their end goal, maybe they care about missing middle housing, but their end goal is to optimize on um, on getting the most bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. There was a study uh, that showed that when they, in, in an urban city, they put up a 200 unit apartment building. What happened was immediately after that was up and uh, they started marketing, Evan Mast, a researcher, found that the prices went down within 200 feet around that building by 6%. I'm not talking about subsidized. It's just merely that somebody who, who now goes to look for a price in that apartment building can go to another apartment building and say, hey, that guy offered me $2,000. Can you do anything better? And now you've got a whole bunch of open 200 unit homes that um, allows folks to have some bargaining room and it opens things up so that people who you know are, are paying an arm and a leg for something that's overly priced can now move into something that's better and that that maybe that landlord who is charging an arm and a leg because they think they could it changes the game. Ah, so what you're saying there is that in that microclimate there, when supply is increased, it's just like if, you know, you, you go to the store and they've got too many avocados, uh, they reduce uh, the, the price on the avocados, that, that you see prices around that new supply start to drop down a bit. Exactly. And I also wrote something with an economist named Kevin Erdman, um, as well as somebody else, a builder in Dallas named Nathaniel Barrett. And there's this concept called filtering and you could google this guy kevin erdman and filtering basically if you build more housing even if it's luxury housing what's going to happen and we saw you see so many stories of this in san francisco where a google tech employee who's making 300k moves in to uh, an apartment building or a condominium that's from like the 1980s renovates it to make it look nicer, but then the person who actually probably really needed that what we call naturally occurring affordable housing, meaning it's an older house, but because it's older, it ends up being cheaper. Now they're having to go to an even cheaper house or when we studied Los Angeles, people have to move out altogether. Whereas if you now build that luxury house, for example, that 300K making tech employee moves into that luxury house, and then you've got some somebody at the lower rung of things who can now move into that 1980s condominium that was probably meant for them. But San Francisco, because they've built very little, the situation is not like that. You've got people who are very wealthy that are moving into older homes, and then you've got the lowest rungs that are that are uh, driving out all the way from places um, like in about an hour, hour and a half away. So you brought up the point about Texas building a lot. I agree, and I think Texas is building more than some of the, the most land use restrictive areas like California, but we're not keeping up and there's still folks that are artificially restricting the markets. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but you also see cities aren't granting permits 
um, at the same extent that they once were and businesses that were otherwise looking to move here are deciding uh, to move away. We saw this with a, a company called Placer Refinery that had a $66 million investment that they were going to put into Texas. They saw what was happening with the housing laws and they ended up moving to Mississippi. Wow. You sound frustrated, Nicole. Yeah, I'm frustrated. <laughs> I'm also really passionate about this. So Yeah, I, maybe it's passion that, that, that I'm, I'm hearing through the voice here. Um, you mentioned, you know, what happens if nothing is done. I, I guess the thing that I don't think we've really touched on is who is at fault for this? We talked about cities being slow. We, the legislature can't, you know, come to an agreement on, on what should be done and getting things passed. Uh, who's at fault? Great question. I think there's a few folks, and I, I think this is sometimes human nature. They move into a place and, you know, they moved into Austin in 1987, or they moved to Dallas in 1987, and they fell in love with Austin that they knew. And the concept of an, a, an Austin that's growing or bringing in new businesses, it it's an assault to their memories that they had when they first moved here. I think there's other folks who think if anybody's making money, then it automatically is not going to help the middle class or the workforce. And I, I think, you know, there's some folks who have a suspicion, and I think it's always good to look at suspicions that you have, but there's just so much data to show that when you build smaller lots, 40% uh, of the price of a home is on the actual land in the South. That really should be 20%. You, hmm. you, you uh, reduce the size of the land, sure, a builder will be making more money per square footage, but now you've got somebody who can purchase, instead of the median home price, which fluctuates in the in the area of Austin at about 500K, now you've got somebody who could buy in Houston, it, it's about 200, it's a, a little bit above 250K for a townhome, so. Nicole, well, is it, uh, but, it, but is it, it, I'm sorry, is, is it is it Texans, fellow Texans who are at fault here? The people who've who've been around for a minute and don't want to see their neighborhoods change and grow? And it's and you, Jason. You're that guy. I, <laughs> you're talking about minimum lot size. Let's talk about your ranch for a moment here, too. <laughs> go, go ahead, Nicole. Is, is it fellow Texans who are holding this thing up? Are they pressuring city halls not to approve things? Are they going down to the planning commission and fighting stuff? Is that what it is? That's exactly. I, I think. There are folks that have been organized for a very long time to oppose projects. And I think when there was less data and less research, it probably made sense to go scratch your head and say, excuse me, you're telling me that putting up um, a market rate or you know not explicitly affordable housing down the street is going to help the workforce and help middle class housing? I don't think so. I think a lot of people are skeptical of that, but there's been so much data since to prove Actually, yes, if we don't build more housing, the the apartment that's already there that should be worth, you know, maybe $200,000 if you're going to buy it goes up to $400,000 just because of simple supply and demand, um, so, you know, approaches. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, you have people on one side who are in the YIMBY camp, yes, yes, in my backyard, the people in the NIMBY, no, not in my backyard, don't build it here. Is there any place in Texas that you have seen that is balancing that fairly well? Is there a city in Texas where they have been sort of out front on this issue and they're balancing those interests and getting housing built? Yes. Um, I 
I think Houston is doing a really phenomenal job at, I mean, getting ahead of the game on this from even the late 90s. Now, now Houston people, is always criticized for not having any zoning and, and, and being a, a total mess zoning-wise. Is that what's working in its favor in this case, in, in, in your estimation? This, this might be, well, the no zoning thing, that I think that is affecting things, but I want to point, what I want to point you towards is the small lot size. I think when you have less land that you have to build on, it doesn't end up being as expensive. I'll give you an example. Westlake Hills, uh, median home price is $3 million. And they have a one acre minimum lot size. And that's in Austin. It's in Austin. Uh, at one of our testimonies. It's a beautiful we, area, though. It's a beautiful area. And you know what? I think uh, if, if a neighborhood wants to create an, a homeowner association, keep those one acre lots. Or if Jason here wants to have his one acre lot, you're welcome to do it. Just don't impose that on the rest of the city. If you like blue shirts, that's great. Buy as many blue shirts as you want. Just don't force me to wear a blue shirt. Hmm. That's that's sort of my philosophy here. But back to your question about, uh, is anybody doing this right? Houston is the fourth most populous city in the entire nation. And yet its home price is below the national median home price, which is quite impressive. You look at New York City, you look at Los Angeles, you look at some of these other big cities, it's it's a uh, things are not going well on housing affordability, but you'll see that Houston allowing people to build on smaller lot sizes, townhomes, um, that's really allowed people. And I know many people who are moving from Dallas, moving from Austin, because they say, I can never store wealth in my home in Dallas or Austin. I can in Houston. So it continues to attract businesses. It con continues to attract growth. I was just there, we're, we're hosting a happy hour. And, um, we met with some of the folks from the city of Houston and from some of the local universities there. Their problems, they're so far ahead of the game. Their problems are uh, are are vastly different than what um, some of the other urban cores here in Texas are dealing with. In particular, you know, Dallas ends up, Dallas is 40, the average Dallasite spends 42% of their money on housing. The average Austinite spends 48% of their income on housing. So it's just, it's unsustainable for small businesses. There is a small business called Baby Greens that um, ended up having to close down its, its doors because the 17 or $18 per hour for the food that they were, for the wages that they were paying uh, wasn't enough for those people working there to continue working there. So. Wow. And 30% was always the old rule that don't spend any more than 30% on your on your housing. Uh, my last question is, you know, you talked about the, the general rule is it takes three sessions or six years, three legislative sessions to get something passed. It seems like the deadline to do something about affordable housing in Texas has long since passed. I think you're on to something. Um, I, from what I've seen, and I'm, I'm really excited about our about some of the progress that we had this past session. So some of the other bills, if you look, you know, HB 14 passed, yay. The other bills that we uh, introduced, they got very, very close, most of which got one body away from getting to the governor's desk. But what you saw was that city of Austin, and I, I also heard whispers that city of San Antonio are looking over their shoulders saying, we should probably reduce the lot size. We need to adjust this uh, better that we decide rather than the state coming down and doing it themselves. 
So the city of Austin actually has a hearing on Thursday to reduce their lot size from 5,750 square feet to 2,500 square feet. Wow. Hmm. Uh, it Change is happening, whether it's at the city or the state level. And on top of that, two very well-funded organizations that have been around uh, Dal uh, Dallas and Austin for at, at least a decade um, are planning on adding to their priorities and independently introducing bills on housing supply and demand in this next session. So it's the good news is there's going to be other people besides me to interview after uh, next legislative session. And so in this two years that you have to wait, though, are you going to be out there lobbying cities next? I mean, you've dealt with political campaigns personally, at, you know, federal, state and local level. Uh, you've been in the ledge this year trying to push things through. You, you obviously know how to talk to these people. Are you going to start hitting them up at the city level? Yes, but I, I don't know if I want to, maybe another another beer, I'll be able to tell you my secret plan in the next year and a half. Oh, you can tell us that right now, actually. You have a secret plan? <laughs> or kind of what the strategy is before the next legislative session, so. Can you give us a hint? Next next podcast session, or next time I'll have to have two of these uh, blonde <laughs> blonde ales before I before I let you in on the secret strategy to, yeah. to that we next, get. Next time I'll have to send you this tropical one that I'm having from Meridian Hive because I, as I said in the beginning, and it has turned out that way, it just. It seems so light and refreshing. It's almost just like drinking punch, you know. It's one of those dangerous ones like that. I don't know if I'm fancy enough for the honey and the beer. I got to be honest. <laughs> Nicole, thanks so much for the insight. The, the, yeah. the insight on this is, is interesting because we've heard about affordability for a long time. And when you help drill down into it, it's, it, 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 yeah, it, it's an issue that should have been addressed years ago anticipation of the Texas miracle. We, we worked on, we, state leaders, figured out how to get businesses here, but they didn't think about one of the effects of that, and this is one of them. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your time. I really think, you know, I think this state has done amazing things with attracting different businesses. Uh, I worry that that will come to a halt when businesses start going, do I really want to pay 30% more so that my workers will be able to stay in Texas? Doesn't that defeat the point? Mm. So that's one thing. But on the other, on the other hand, I, you know, we send our kids to preschool and one of my preschool teachers, it's probably one of the most well-funded, well-attended preschools. She has to drive uh, 45 minutes to an hour. She lives in a trailer park in Cedar Creek mm. and it, it, in her parents' backyard. And this is her, or I'm sorry, a, a trailer, not a trailer park. But uh, this is how this is how she has to live while making a pretty decent salary between 50, 60k. I mean, wow. this is unacceptable. This is a hardworking preschool teacher. So I appreciate you guys uh, giving me the time, and I look forward to telling you the secret strategy uh, next podcast. We're gonna hold you to that. Uh, don't tell it to anybody else before you tell us. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you both. Nicole, thank you. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Eolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas.